Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Before we begin, a couple notes. First, I'm doing another survey to find out what you guys want from the podcasts and how I can make them better. Last year, we heard you loud and clear on the news front and so have begun including a weekly news recap at the end of every Unconfirmed. This year, what would you like to see from Unchained? Please take a moment to fill out the survey to let us know what you'd like from the show. The link is in the show notes, or you can just go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. And guess what? Crypto.com has offered our survey respondents a chance to win a metal MCO Visa card. And Crypto.com will stake these cards indefinitely. Ten lucky winners will enjoy card benefits, including free Spotify, free Netflix, and 3% back on all spending. And they'll earn extra interest on their crypto deposits and more. Thanks, Crypto.com. Again, take the survey now. SurveyMonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. That's SurveyMonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. One other thing, Unchained is hiring. I am looking for a remote editorial assistant to start working later this summer as one of my staff is leaving to go to grad school. This role handles numerous editorial tasks from booking to proofreading to social media and deals with everything from the show itself to the show notes to the newsletter. If you love crypto and have journalism experience, get in touch. I have a link to the job posting in the show notes and the listing is also available on my site. And there it explains what you should send in and how. Did you invest in a crypto project ICO that promised innovation but delivered nothing? You might have recourse, but statutes of limitations are quickly approaching. Kelman PLLC, run by some of the first lawyers to enter crypto in 2013, is here to help. Go to www.kelman.law with one L, not two, or email them at info at kelman.law. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases for the next three months. Download the Crypto.com app today. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure, whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars. Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at unchained.stellar.org. Today's topic is how projects should decentralize. Here to discuss are Jesse Walden, founder of Variant, and Robert Leshner, founder of Compound. Welcome, Robert and Jesse. Hi, Laura. Hey, Laura. I think the topic for today's discussion can be centered around one basic problem, which is the fact that when teams are building decentralized projects, they start out as a team, which means that the project will start out as centralized. So then the question is, how do they eventually decentralize? 
And we've seen a number of ways that various teams have tried to solve this conundrum. But before we get into that, let's dive into your background so people have an understanding of where you're coming from on this topic. Jesse, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. So I guess I first got involved with crypto as a founder of a project called Media Chain um, back in 2014. And our goal was to build what we called sort of a universal media library. So kind of like Bitcoin aims to be a universal store of value. We wanted to do the same for uh, a different type of digital asset. Instead of a financial asset, we wanted to focus on images, songs, and videos or media assets and make them discoverable anywhere they were distributed on the internet. And that project was acquired by Spotify in 2017, where it went on to lead blockchain R&D. And I was there throughout the sort of crazy run-up in the markets in 2017. Um, And then left to join Andreessen Horowitz, um, where we spun out a dedicated crypto fund. Um, and I worked on the investment team for the for the last two and a half years. And and now with Variant, um, I'm planning to work with entrepreneurs at the earliest stages in, in their journey um, and help them solve problems like uh, the question of how to, how to decentralize. And Robert, you were on Unchained before, and you did talk about your background then, but for people who didn't listen to that episode, especially because it was a while back, um, how about you? Let us know what your background is in crypto and and before. Yeah. So I started my career in the traditional finance space. Um, I was an interest rate economist, and I was focused on you know traditional financial markets. I started Compound in 2017 to create interest rate markets for crypto assets. Um, when I was on the show last time, you know, I think I probably was forward-looking about the ideals of decentralization. But Compound as a protocol was in a very early phase where it was still being worked on by a core team that was taking it from the very early stages of being an idea into the first working prototypes of being an application that the community can start to use. Um, since that point, you know, we've seen um, widespread growth in the Compound protocol. It manages hundreds of millions of dollars of assets, and it provides interest rates for uh, many different applications in the space that are looking to earn an interest rate on the crypto that their applications hold and provide additional functionality to decentralized applications. So now let's dive into the details of our topic and talk about the difficulties of building a decentralized project Jesse, you wrote about this in your Progressive Decentralization Playbook. So how would you describe the challenge here? Yeah, so I think you you touched on it earlier in saying that there's sort of a dissonance between, um, you know, building a product and um, and then the, the sort of ultimate goal of crypto networks, which is to become sufficiently decentralized. Such and and I think it's important first, sort of addressing the question why crypto projects you know aim to be decentralized in the first place, and from there sort of back out how how to get there. So I guess maybe to start the the reason for decentralization in many of these projects is that decentralization is sort of a proxy for trust. Um, you can trust that a crypto network is going to behave as specified if there's many sort of independent parties running code on independent machines. And, and that's sort of what's at the core of you know networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. As you as the community starts to develop sort of more complex applications, um, th- there tends to be a shift from deterministic protocols or, or protocols that um, conduct sort of verifiable computation 
to protocols that require or applications that require more subjective inputs um, and, and human decision making. And for those types of applications, Compound being being one of them, there needs to be a sense of sort of community ownership over how those decisions get made. And community ownership is important because it means it allows for the community to ensure that their sort of interests are being reflected in, in the decision making that goes on in these applications. And, and that's very different from traditional internet platforms, which are you know owned by investors and shareholders. Um, whose interests are not always aligned with the with the interests of end users. So, so that's all to say, you know, decentralization matters because um, it's it's a way for the community of users who build on top of these platforms or, or use the, the applications built on top of these platforms to uh, feel as if the platform is aligned with with their own interests. So that's been on why decentralization matters. And then I I would argue that the path to getting there isn't an immediate one, but rather sort of a step-by-step process. And and breaking it out into these three steps isn't obvious to everyone. There are a lot of projects, um, especially back in the in the sort of early days of crypto, that strive for decentralization out of the gate because um, it offers the benefits I just described. Um, but to start, I would argue that teams really need to think about first building a product that people actually want. And they're, um, you know, the, the goal isn't very different from that of a traditional startup because without a product that people want, um, you don't really have much to work with. And, and um, you, you, you probably will have a hard time building a community that ultimately wants to sort of, you know, take control or, or um, build on, to, on, on top of what it is that you're building. So, so yeah, the, the first step is finding product market fit, building a product that people want and, and thereafter building a community around that product such that you can get to the third and final step, which is turning ownership over to the community. And I actually just for a moment want to step back to what you were saying about the differences between a decentralized protocol versus a decentralized DAP or <laughs> application. Yeah. Um, uh, I just, so you did say in your playbook that blockchain protocols are or that they require, and I'm going to quote you here, that they require sufficient decentralization from inception in order to be useful. So why is there that distinction again? You might have explained it briefly, but I just want to explore that a bit further. Yeah. So so my playbook is really sort of um, really aims to speak to entrepreneurs and, and founders building at the application layer, um, and 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 that means you know applications built on top of smart contract platforms like Ethereum. Um, at, at the lower layers in the stack, so you know layers like Ethereum or, or other smart contract platforms, um, arguably you need decentralization out of the gate in order for the platform to be useful. And, and that is because you know, platforms like Ethereum, the promise of the platform is that they do computation that can be trusted. And, and again, that trust derives from decentralized network of physical machines that are running all over the world that result in this single virtual machine that developers can build on top of knowing that the code that they write and deploy to the platform is going to execute as specified because if one machine goes rogue, there's many other machines, you know, that, that will sort of behave correctly and and ensure that the application that a developer writes um, continues to run as, as specified. So at layer one, you sort of need decentralization and those many machines running the network to get those trust guarantees that make the platform usable by developers 
who need to build applications or, or who need um, tr- that trust in order to build useful applications like Compound. And so earlier you did go over the stages of decentralization, starting with product market fit and also going into community participation and then eventually reaching the stage of sufficient decentralization. And I was curious um, to know about some of the ways that teams are moving along these stages. Like, for instance, one of the ones that you mentioned in your playbook was something called Kelvin versioning. And I just wanted you to maybe kind of describe some of the ways that teams are trying to move from stage to stage. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think Robert is is probably even, you know, the, the best person to answer this question because he's he's been living it over the past couple of years um, uh, with Compound and, and he can give you, uh, you know, his his own experience. But, but maybe before I turn it over to Robert to answer that, I, I, I would just note that recently um, Reddit sort of Reddit sort of made a play in the crypto space that I think validates the the, the hypothesis of this playbook, which is, you know, they j- just announced community currencies. Um, and so a couple of subreddits, I think um, one is called our Fortnite BR, which is the, the big Fortnite subreddit and then and then our cryptocurrency are both getting their own subreddit currencies i think bricks and moons uh, respectively and what's interesting is those cryptocurrencies did not launch sort of in a vacuum they launched after um reddit built product features that they felt had product market fit with those those communities namely the ability to tip and sort of access premium features in each of these subreddits, respectively, using those currencies. So Reddit, I, I would argue, sort of built a product that, that they felt had early signs of product market fit. Of course, there was sort of a robust community in each of these subreddits already. And so there was you know, a good amount of community participation. And then at the time that they actually launch these uh, community currencies, um, and they, they effectively are now in the process of turning ownership of the community over to the to the contributors directly um, through this token, and so so I think that's a, a very good example of a sort of high profile platform um, executing this playbook step by step. And Robert's been doing a similar thing, and and, and I think can probably speak best to, to how he's been thinking about it. And actually, Robert, before you start, I just wanted to ask one more thing, which either of you can answer, but. Um, so Reddit and Kick are somewhat similar in that both of them did have um, these communities to start with and then introduced a token. And is the main difference simply that Kick had an ICO and that Reddit didn't? Or what would you say is the distinction there? Because obviously, as we know now, the SEC it has gone after Kick and they're still uh, in a court battle. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a big one. I think. Um... You know, tons of projects, not just Kick. They they started out um, trying to achieve decentralization through a token sale. That is sort of seeding a community um, by by issuing a token and distributing it. Um, you know, in exchange for for funding. And and I think you know what what we've learned is not only is that a way to potentially trip regulatory wires, it, it can also be a way to sort of invite um, a community of speculators rather than a community of, of real contributors or, or, or people participating in a productive way. Um, and, and, and so my view is that if you start sort of product first, um, and, and build validation around product market fit, and you, you sort of naturally move from there to a, a sort of active community 
whom you can then confer ownership to. And, and that's a better way to sort of build a, a community of engaged participants um, who are excited to sort of in, in inherit ownership of the platform and, and sort of take it over from there. Um, and, and that's a healthier way to grow um, a community from, from inception rather than the other way around. All right, Robert, why don't you talk about Compound and how you guys are trying to decentralize? Yeah, so I think this question starts with why decentralize in the first place? Why build an application using a blockchain and smart contracts when you can build it alternatively using a database and by acting as a centralized business? And I think there's an important difference because you could build a Compound-like product not using smart contracts. There's a number of companies out there um, that have the same you know, types of you know, financial use cases that aren't built on a blockchain and aren't built using smart contracts. Um, I think long-term, the biggest advantage of decentralization is that it allows an application to run forever, to be censorship-resistant, to be open to users anywhere, and to be able to be improved and expanded on by the community. But obviously, starting there is extremely hard. Um, launching a decentralized application is difficult from a coordination standpoint. Um, just building it is hard. Um, and, you know, as Jesse touched on earlier with, you know, the decentralization playbook, it's overkill um, in a lot of ways. You know, unless there's a reason for an application to run forever, it doesn't need to be decentralized. When there's no users, it doesn't matter whether it's fully centralized or fully decentralized. And so at Compound, we've always viewed a decentralized product as being the end goal, that it can be the very best version of the product possible if it's fully decentralized. But we started with a lot of components being centralized, the development of Compound and the control of it and the governance decisions. So in our experience, what we've done is over time, Step by step by step and month by month, we've tried to shed as much responsibility as possible to the point where we're now in a position where the protocol is actually run by a um, governance system that's coordinated through a governance token instead of through a centralized business. And the protocol is upgraded um, and improved through a governance process. And so we've had a lot of steps and we can over, you know, this interview drill into different steps that we've um, experienced, but it's really been this gradual transition where we've iterated into removing as much responsibility as we can over time. And the way that you have decided to more progressively decentralize is to now introduce a governance token, which has the ticker comp. Why did you decide to go that route? So there was really two guiding principles um, in creating a governance token to run the protocol. The first one was to remove um, our team as a point of failure. Um, you can think of this governance token in the aggregate as like a giant multi-sig that's required to make changes to the protocol. Um, I'll, be, I'll be very honest when I say I don't actually like having administrative control over something. I, you know, I don't like worrying that someone's going to come up to me on the street with a wrench and try to steal a key. Um, having, you know, a huge community share responsibility for approving changes to a protocol prevents right out of the gate, a huge amount of accidental or malicious errors that can occur. The second reason is it allows a much wider audience to actually suggest changes. Um, a centralized team only has so much creative throughput and engineering capacity 
um, you know, if it was left to us, we can only make one or two changes to the protocol in any given month, week, quarter, year, etc. By rolling out governance to a much larger audience and designing it in such a way that the community can actually suggest and implement changes themselves, it allows a much wider surface area for creativity and improvements. Um, and we're already seeing, you know, stakeholders in the community actually implement and merge in changes to the protocol itself. And so I view this as like the tools required to allow it to run forever and to continuously upgrade. Um, now that there's, you know, a lot of applications and users that care about seeing the protocol succeed. And one other thing, actually, that I just wanted to ask about, because it almost seems to go in the opposite direction of your arguments, is that, as we all know, recently there was a hack of the LendFMe protocol, and the team behind that DeForce appears to have copied the original compound code. And in a discussion that I had on Unchained about that attack, some people we're saying, you know, essentially that the compound team was, you know, really up on security. And that was why you had prevented something similar happening on compound, because essentially, like certain technical decisions that the DeForce team had taken is what enabled that attack. So in that sense, it almost <laughs> seems like you were able to protect yourselves because you are still somewhat centralized. Would you agree with that? Or what's your take on it? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, and it's one of the most important trade-offs as you start to decentralize and start to hand off responsibility for the community. So I do think that because our team has historically spent so much effort, time, and money focused on security, that we were able to prevent um, something negative from happening. We now have a responsibility of teaching and handing off those expectations to the community. And Aligning the incentives such that the community that winds up taking over the protocol demands the same rigor before a change is implemented. You know, I'm speaking personally as an individual, um, not as somebody at Compound, but when I vote my comp tokens, the first thing I look for is, has the code been audited and peer-reviewed, and is it safe? Or does it not make any changes to the code of the protocol at all? And it's just changing a parameter doesn't need to be peer-reviewed and audited in the same way. You know, my first decision as a token holder on whether or not to approve a change does come down to security. And I hope and expect that over time the community starts to enforce the exact same standards as they vote on upgrades to Compound. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this concept, There's it's called Linus's Law, um, which is the idea that um, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. So given, given that Compound's now in this mode of sort of open development, you, you, know, you would assume that it's not just the eyeballs of, of the core team, but the eyeballs of all those who have a, a say in how Compound uh, moves forward when reviewing any proposal made. And, and presumably more eyeballs, the better in terms of security. Yeah. <laughs> Something that blew my mind a little bit about that story is that that attack vector was written about the previous summer <laughs> before <laughs> the attack happens. So, um, you know, it was widely known. So, you know, you would have thought the team would have uh, by then absorbed the lesson and, and known to uh, not allow ERC-777 ERC tokens on on um, on their contracts. But 
Anyway, and the other thing that is remarkable is that it took so somebody that long to exploit it. But anyway, um, so just to go back, I also wanted to ask you, Robert. Um, so when you guys were deciding for Compound to further decentralize, like what metrics were you looking at to say to yourselves, okay, this is now the time to take this step or that step? Like, you know, was it something about your developer community or um, the the community in general? Or, you know, what were you looking at to make that decision? That's a great question. So we were looking at the protocol being, you know, in a position where it needs to harden and become more predictable for the applications built on top of it. Um, you know, when a team has complete centralized control, they can change a product or take it in whatever direction they want. And at Compound, we really think of the primary user as an application developer, another exchange or custodian or wallet or extremely creative product that someone in the community is building. And, you know, I actually look at Bitcoin as, you know, in some ways the best, you know, analogy in that it's very hardened. It's very predictable. You know exactly what you're getting. It's you know, something that's worthy of developing on top of because you know where it's going to be next month. We didn't want to really harden Compound until it was at a place where we saw that there was widespread adoption. Um, for us, a lot of the decision came down to seeing a number of applications built on top of Compound before deciding that, you know, it needed to have the sort of guarantees of decentralization. And so for us, you know, it was really like, do we want to, you know, create something more predictable and stable for the developers. And that was the lens that we were using. Version 1 of Compound lived for about a year, and we actually saw almost no you know, widespread adoption and developer integrations of it, even though that was the goal all along. And so for us, we said, well, we need to improve the underlying protocol. We need to make changes. We need to you know, modify the way it works you know, and have the nimbleness of a centralized team. And we put all of that into version two of Compound, which launched uh, almost exactly one year ago today, saw the adoption, saw the integrations occurring and say, said to ourselves, now is the time that we're able and should and we need to res- think responsibly about handing off that control to the developers built on top. And so what is the system of governance in Compound today? Well, it's based on simplicity. Um, so it's actually a relatively straightforward governance mechanism. Um, there's a number of comp tokens. Currently, we're testing the comp governance system with a limited number of stakeholders. There's about 60 or 70. And the way it works is anybody that has 100,000 comp that they're able to vote with can propose a change to the protocol. Um, changes are you know, actual executable code. It's not a suggestion for a centralized foundation or team somewhere to go and do something. It's actually like, you know, a modification to the protocol. And then over a three-day period, anybody with comp votes can say for or against. Um, That's the only parameters, you know, yes or no. And if a minimum threshold of votes, as well as a majority of votes, are cast for the proposal, it goes into a two-day waiting period where if you don't like the change, you can opt out of being a user. And after two days, it's executed and the protocol is upgraded. Um, you know, we've seen a number of proposals. Um, some, the first one was proposed by our team. We've had two others proposed by members of the community. And all three passed and were 
executed and modified the way that the compound protocol operates over the last six weeks. The only additional layer that makes this even more exciting is out of the gate, um, the governance system runs on this concept of liquid democracy and delegation. So anyone with the COP token can either participate in this governance process themselves. They can propose changes or vote on proposals. Or if they want to take a more passive role, they can delegate their votes to anybody else in the community. Um, This could be an expert. This could be an application. This could be a DAO. This could be Laura Shin. uh, This could be anybody that you trust with your votes that you think is going to be more active than you. And it allows people to participate as much or as little as they want and to channel good decision-making to the place where they think good decisions will be made. And that's the system in its entirety. Um, It's a core part of the protocol itself. And so it in itself can be upgraded through governance. So if the comp token holders say, hey, we can optimize this or calibrate in some way, that's possible. So a year from now, it might work in a slightly different fashion. Um, But the system is designed for simplicity and it's currently live and it's completely transparent. So anyone out there listening to this show can actually... You know, look at the governance system of Compound, see every vote that was cast, see every vote that's ever been delegated, see all of the participants in the ecosystem and see how it's operating. Um, it's available at compound.finance slash governance. And it's a really cool system that's extremely transparent and liquid. One thing I have to ask you about is that the uh, governance proposals need to be submitted in code, I believe. Is that correct? That's correct, although we've created a GUI or a dashboard that makes certain proposals extremely trivial for a non-technical user. So you know, the last proposal that was created was to change one of the properties of an asset market. You know, How good is the asset as collateral, and how does an interest rate work with it? Um, and it was as simple as dragging and dropping, so to speak, for the individual that created the proposal. There was no code written by them. And they were able to go to a a dashboard that's only visible to those with enough votes uh, to create that proposal. Okay. I'm sure you know where I was going with that because as a non-technical person myself, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a huge, (laughs) it gives a leg up to to everybody fluent in smart contract coding, but all the non-coders are sort of shut out. (laughs) But, Um, But then there's, but then there's delegation, right? So like, you know, in spite of the fact there's a dashboard, but, but all separately, you know, a non-technical person could um, could delegate votes to someone more technical to propose something. And I, I think that's a really great way to sort of scale governance because you can have people specialize in different areas um, that, that they're strong in. That's exactly right. All right. So in a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about how Compound is decentralizing and also talk about some other projects and how they've gone about it. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. The Stellar Network connects people to global currencies and assets. Stellar lets you make near-instant payments in any currency with anyone, anywhere. It's an open blockchain network that acts as payment rails for applications and institutions around the world, and designed so that existing financial systems can work together on a single platform. Transactions powered by Stellar are low-cost, transparent, and fast. 
saving both businesses and end users the time and money associated with traditional payment networks. With Stellar, your business can issue digital dollars or exchange existing fiat currencies without the need for complicated smart contracts or new programming languages. Its robust documentation, toolkits, and multi-language support let you quickly integrate Stellar into your existing products and services. Learn more about Stellar and start building today at unchained.stellar.org. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you could get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food delivery and grocery shopping at merchants like Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and more. Don't have a card yet? Buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Chipotle, Papa John's, Domino's, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. This is a global offer, so check out which merchants are available in your country. Download the Crypto.com app today. Kelman Law is run by True Crypto OGs and based in New York and Taiwan. They were already operating since way back in 2013. And of course, they accept crypto as payment. The founding partners are known for having drafted bills and crypto regulations submitted to U.S. Congress, as well as working in the Mt. Gox civil rehabilitation case. If you participated in a token offering and have not been able to get back your funds, then you should contact Kelman. Kelman Law is staffed with lawyers with expertise in ICO litigation, dispute resolution, anti-money laundering, and U.S. and international corporate structuring for crypto businesses. So if you have a dispute with an ICO project or just need solid legal advice related to crypto, send a message to info at kelman.law. That's K-E-L-M-A-N dot law. Kelman with one L, not two. Or just go to their website at www.kelman.law. Kelman.law. When you think crypto, think Kelman. Back to my conversation with Robert Leshner and Jesse Walden. So how have you been distributing the token? Yeah, so in creating the distribution of the token, we've held a couple principles in mind. And some of the pieces, you know, we're saving for future announcements. But what we've done is we've decided to allocate the tokens between those who originally built the protocol and the users of the protocol. So our goal is, you know, very soon to begin distributing over half of all tokens to the users of the protocol. And... We believe that you know, by aligning those who are using the protocol on a daily basis with governance, it will lead to the best governance of the protocol. Um, the token's not an economic token. There's no cash flows associated with it. It's purely for the purposes of governing how changes are made to the protocol. And we believe that you know, by splitting it between the original developers um, and the people that back the original developers and the community, it'll lead to a long-term incentive of those who want to see it succeed, of you know, folks that want to see it upgraded in the right ways to maintain the stability of the protocol. And so what were some of the things that you did just to make sure that the token would not run afoul of regulations? So we believe that regulators have the right intention and that projects can learn a lot from what the regulations are and why they exist in the first place. And we've done a number of things to try to fit into the expectations um, of regulators perfectly. So the first is that we waited until the governance system was fully built, the protocol was fully built, 
and that the token could be used to participate in governance before introducing it. Um, you know, for us, this meant um, introducing a token three years after beginning the project. The second is that these tokens aren't used as a fundraising device. We're not selling them. We're creating them after the protocol is fully live. Um, and they're really you know, being distributed in a non-fundraising mechanism. And lastly, we're distributing them to users only once all of the pieces are in place so that users are able to um, further the decentralization of the protocol and of the token. And so the end result is one in which the protocol should be able to run with community input, community management, and community control with no reliance on the original developers at all and be able to effectively run the protocol. And just out of curiosity, so once you achieve your goal and Compound is decentralized, what will happen to Compound the company? Yeah, that's a great question. We get asked that a lot. Um, I see us continuing to build on top of the protocol, but not building the underlying protocol itself. Uh, similar in a lot of ways to, you know, if, if we were Satoshi and we created Bitcoin and then we went out and created Coinbase. Um, you know, we want the community to be solely responsible for the protocol itself, how it operates, and to participate as just any other member of the community on a completely fair basis with no advantages. Um, but to build some new things on top of the protocol now that we've ushered into it into existence. Interesting. All right. Well, let's um, now just talk generally about other ways that projects can decentralize. And this sort of goes back to some of the things that Jesse outlined in the playbook. But there are these other ways that um, projects are trying to keep their dApps sort of like alive. Um, and yet some of them also run the risk of opening the way for a competitor. So for instance, if a dApp starts charging fees, can you just outline the pros and cons of doing that and how it is that such a project could prevent any other open source project from coming in and just swooping away all their users by lowering or dropping the fees? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there. I, I think it's it's helpful to think of crypto networks as um, as marketplaces. You know, Bitcoin, for example, um, has a fee associated with every transaction, and part of that fee, you know, is is used to reward the miners for ordering the transaction in the blockchain. Um, and of course, in Bitcoin and Ethereum, there's also minor rewards to, to sort of subsidize the fee. But but over time, those rewards are meant to diminish. And, and at the end of the day, what you're left with is is a marketplace where users pay fees, and um, and those operating the network earn those fees. Um, now, there's there's many anyone can come along and fork the Bitcoin network or fork Ethereum, and and what they're doing is they're forking the code and and sort of the state of the network, um, but they're not necessarily forking the community with it. Um, and and that when when I say forking the community, that's sort of a social idea. You need to get all the people, all the humans that use this network um, to, to move from, you know, what they view as the, the canonical instantiation of the Bitcoin or Ethereum network to, to your fork. And, and there's a cost to doing that. The, the, the social cost of coordinating everyone is, is a switching cost. And, and the concept of switching costs is, is nothing new when it comes to marketplaces or networks. Um, you know, Uber, Airbnb, traditional Web2 marketplaces 
um, the, the value of those marketplaces is due to the switching cost of moving to an alternative. So anyone could build a competing Airbnb you know, service or a, a, a competitor to Uber, but it's hard to get all the users that those platforms have amassed to switch over. And so switching costs is what's at the core of um, defensibility of Web2 platforms. It's also what's at the core of defensibility of, of crypto networks. Um, now, su- switching costs are lower in crypto because everything is open source. So, you know, it's it's you can't take Uber's database of drivers and uh, and fork it over to your platform. You can do that in crypto, but there's the cost of forking is still non-zero. As I mentioned, you have to get all the the people involved to move over, um, and so that switching cost does allow for some margin of of, of uh, defensibility that allows for these marketplaces to extract a fee. And I think so. Hopefully, that highlights that the business model for crypto networks is actually quite similar to to Web two. But what's different about um, about crypto networks is there's this new potential to take that fee stream and distribute it directly to the users um, who generate the network effects of a platform, who make the platform valuable in the first place. Um, and and if you do that effectively, um, you reinforce the network effects because now the users have a, a stake in the platform and want to see it continue to grow. Um, and and so I, I I think that is that that sort of validates the the idea that. These networks are marketplaces. They they have a business model, which is fees. And then and the new thing is just um, defensibility is created by distributing that fee stream to the actual users. Um, and and that's very different from Web two. Yeah, and something else that we've kind of been talking about here and there, but not really dived into, is the issue of token distribution. Um, you know, some of you have mentioned it, like in some of your answers, like about Reddit or about how Compound is doing it. But, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, some of the ways that uh, teams have been doing this have invited speculators. So what are some of the best ways to do it um, in a way that's fair, but also in a way that invites real users? And what is also a fair amount to allocate to the initial team and cap table? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it it's going to vary case by case on um, depending on sort of the specific application and the specific community in question. Um, that that said, I think you know what what you don't want to do is sell all the tokens upfront to a community of of folks that um, you know may may not have any interest in actually using what you've built. And and so I think one of the things that Compound's done really well is, you know, first find a community of developers to build on top of the protocol, understand their needs, adapt the protocol quickly to to, to make it more useful to them, and then sort of promise a, a distribution of ownership over the protocol over time um, so that the, that community can feel confident that the rules of the platform are not going to change um, from underneath them. And, and, and that gives them sort of, you know, increases their incentive to build and contribute. Um, so, so I would encourage against sort of, you know, selling out to, to, uh, unknown community of speculators at the outset. Um, and, and that's of course what happened in, in 2017. That said, the, I think that, you know, speculation isn't all bad in that, um, you know, it does, it does, um, give the com- community members a way to, um, to sort of have a stake in platform growth. And I think that's ultimately sort of the big unlock that, that crypto enables it sort of surfaced this latent demand that 
you know, everyday internet users actually do want to own a piece of the, the, the platforms and services they interact with every day. And, and tokens are a way to sort of effectuate that because we can now move value in the way we move bits of, of information. So some degree of, um, of ownership by the community is important. It just needs to happen at the right time and, and sort of in, in, in uh, response to real contribution. Um, and again, that, that will depend largely on the application in question and the community, you know, community's values. Um, so it'll be different case by case. Oh, even for something like the allocation to the initial team, like there's no kind of convergence around what is the proper amount? I mean, I think I think we're starting to see more and more teams sort of um, break it down where it's it's roughly, you know, 50% goes to the core team and, and investors that sort of bootstrap the thing and 50% to the community. And then over time, um, that, that split may shift, um, for example, through, you know, increased inflation um, over time, but maybe that, you know, you start sort of 50, 50, and, and then the role of the core team, um, sort of diminishes as the community sort of takes over and, and new tokens are minted. And again, this is something that, um, that the community has a say in because, you know, for, for example, in compound, the community can change, um, pretty much every aspect of the system through governance. So you can imagine that over time, the community decides, you know, we need to start rewarding, um, new contributors to the protocol as opposed to the initial team. And, and one way to do that might be by, by allocating those new contributors additional tokens. And so um, one thing that we've talked about here and there is regulation, but we haven't actually uh, named the exact regulation that a lot of people are concerned about. And um, I feel like this is this has been a theme basically since the early days of cryptocurrency, even going back to the first event that we would now call an ICO, even though that term didn't exist then, which was MasterCoin. And um, at that time, even uh, people were concerned that the tokens would be considered securities. And the way in the US that um, that is determined is by something called the Howey test. Hopefully listeners know what this is by now, but if you're new, I'll just say it's this four-pronged test in which a token would have to meet all four prongs to be considered a security. And those four prongs are, number one, it's an investment of money, two, into a common enterprise, three, with an expectation of profits, and four, dependent on an identifiable third party. So in your work with teams, are you seeing them like actively trying to build their strategies in such a way so as not to hit the four prongs? And in general, like, you know, what are some of the um, kind of maybe rules of thumb that are emerging when it comes to thinking about the Howey test and how it applies in these situations? Well, yeah, I think so with, with how you need to you need to hit all four prongs, I guess, in, in most cases in order to, to trip the, the securities uh, regulation. And, you know, the, the, there are good reasons that those regulations exist. Um, you know, it's to protect investors. And, you know, what comes with that, though, is there's a ton of overhead. And, and generally, it's a lot for um, for early stage startups to manage being sort of a, a, a regulated security and and it's it, all that sort of overhead gets in the way of building a product that people want. So it, that's why I think it's advisable for early teams to to you know not worry about a token from the outset, um, especially when the there is sort of a large dependence on the efforts of others 
um, namely that of the efforts of the core team. And so, you know, as Robert mentioned, you know, start when, when he started out, when others start out, it's really important that the core team is able to iterate quickly. And at that point, you probably don't want to have a token um, because you might then trip the, the, the Howey test. And, um, and so the, I think the, the prong to really zero in on is this prong of, of the efforts of others. Once you can sort of demonstrate that the product or service that you've built is in fact owned and operated by the community and, and thus no longer has a dependence on others or the core team, at that point, you may not be running afoul of securities regulation. You, you, you then don't have to necessarily deal with um, with the overhead of, of being a regulated security. And, and that's great because it means that um, the community can, can start to contribute um, and add, you know, add value without having to, um, you know, file all kinds of, you know, regulatory paperwork and, and so on. It, it, it makes the system much more sort of internet native. Um, and, and I think that's really important for innovation to continue. And so then would you say that it seems like one of the rules of thumb is to not issue a token before the network is live, like when you said early? Definitely, yeah. I think I think um, the, the right time to do it is, again, once, you, once you've built a product that people want, demonstrated that the community is, is sort of excited about it, and that the way to measure that is whether they're building on top, whether they're contributing ideas or code. And at that point, you might want to stand up some sort of governance process wherein you can demonstrate that the community has, in fact, taken over control of the of the project from the core team. And, and there are there at that point, you know, there is no dependence on the core team that the project is hopefully sufficiently decentralized. And, and at that point, there there can be a token um, that doesn't trip this prong uh, on the efforts of others. All right. So let's talk about some of these <laughs> uh, controversial issues that have come up with how decentralized or not decentralized certain projects are. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is the recent BZX attacks, where after the attacks occurred, people were up in arms about the fact that the BZX team had an admin key, which they used to pause the protocol. And I guess this was a surprise to some people who thought BZX was decentralized. So what's your take on what happened there? Like, what would have been the appropriate action for the team to take? And should, in that case, do you think that team should have had an admin key? I'll I'll jump in on this. So I believe that any system should be documented and transparent. I think, you know, the incongruency that you've highlighted is that the community didn't know how it worked. And so their expectations were shattered. I think whether or not there's an admin key is not the important piece. It's, is it documented? Do people know how things work? Is the code available to inspect and audit? And does the community have a general understanding of how it works? You know, there's always going to be an incredible gradient of decentralization. What you don't want is for there to be a mismatch between how decentralized the community thinks it is and how decentralized it actually is. I think the way they responded was probably totally appropriate. Pausing the protocol when there's a horrific loss of funds makes a lot of sense. I think they should have prepared for that by documenting their systems more and being more transparent. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think, you know, being radically transparent about the state of the system 
is actually a, a way to build trust, even if it's the case that the system is still centralized um, at the outset. Again, you know, in the early stages of a product, it's all about finding product market fit. And at that point, there probably should be no pretense of decentralization. You should just build, you know, focus on building a product that people want and be transparent about where control in the system exists. And, and doing so is actually a way to build trust with the community. Whereas if you obfuscate um, the control that exists in the system, you know, once it's unearthed, you will very quickly sort of undermine any trust that that you might have built on false pretenses. So I think, you know, tr- transparency is paramount and, um, and, and part of how you build trust towards progressively decentralizing the protocol. Oh, this is this is an interesting perspective you guys have. I did see that Eric Wall had a tweet storm on admin keys. And this is also really interesting, his perspective here. But he said that people tracking the DeFi teams with admin, or sorry, that people attacking the DeFi teams with admin keys and saying that they're no different from centralized exchanges, that that attack is, quote, the cheap, boring, fast track to crypto Twitter wokeness. And then he, his stance was that a DeFi key to pause or freeze a contract was not really like a centralized exchange because it would not allow the team to confiscate individual user balances. And he said, um, and I, you know, I didn't talk to Eric, but just from the way the tweets were phrased, it seemed to, he seemed to be saying that these types of admin keys are probably okay, at least to him. He said, um, you know, some admin keys have built-in time delays so that users can withdraw their money from the contract before any change goes into effect, um, such as an upgrade. And so he said that that's obviously different from a centralized exchange. And he said that some other smart contracts are opting to not have admin keys at all and instead require that if they make an upgrade that everybody move their funds to the new contract. So what's your take on any or all of these options and you know what it is that admin keys should be used for? So this goes to the progressive decentralization. And this can, for even a single project, evolve considerably. Um, a great example is when Compound launched, you know, there was an admin that could make any change to any contract with no notice um, at will. And that's because when there's very few users, the stakes are low and you need to be flexible. And over time, there's lots of tools that you can use to decrease the potency of an admin key. So one example is a time delay for any change where a user, as you mentioned, could opt out. Um, That is a significant improvement in reducing the potency of an admin key. The second is changing what an admin key can do. You know, reducing the ability to make a unilateral change um, is an improvement. So there's all of these steps along the way. Not having an admin key at all is even better, right? We're finally at the point where, you know, any change to the protocol not only requires a delay, but also to go through a governance process. And there's no admin key that can, you know, make a unilateral change to the code base right now. Um, There's all of these steps in between. And any team can, in some ways, pick and choose and mix and match you know, how they reduce the potency of an admin key starting from a very centralized point and leading all the way to a very decentralized point. And every team has a different set of standards. Well, one thing that I am so curious about is, as we're seeing, these DeFi protocols are very interoperable and there's constant change and new developments. And so as the technology keeps improving, we're just going to end up with a lot of situations like the Lendf Me attack where 
you know, we have this new technology, the ERC-777 token that um, when it operates with older protocols, introduces a vulnerability. And I can't imagine that that's not going to happen time and again. And as we get more, like just the 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 sheer proliferation of new DeFi protocols, like it just means that it's going to be incredibly difficult for teams to keep up and to make sure that their project doesn't interact with another project in a way that introduces vulnerability. So like the idea that you would get to the point where it's not upgradable, <laughs> like I'm a little bit like, what are we going to see? Just like every single time there's a new DeFi project, like a bunch of projects are like, we're going to shut down for, you know, like two weeks or whatever. And then, and then switch everybody over. Like, how is this all going to work? <laughs> well, so, so I think zooming out, you got to look at the big picture and, and what, what you're describing is sort of, um, you know, an ecosystem evolving through what, what's, called, you know, composable building blocks where, you know, each application or each DeFi protocol um, is a building block that other developers are building on top of and extending and, and sort of adding new functionality to. And, and the, the positive view of this is, you know, that's awesome because it means developers can build way more with fewer resources because they don't have to build everything from scratch. They can sort of build on top of the work that others have done. The, the negative view is, well, that means that there's all these dependencies on the work that others have done. And if there's a vulnerability, you know, the whole thing can come crashing down. Um, I, I tend to think that that sort of that, that negative outcome is, you know, certainly something that will happen. Um, you know, there, there are bugs in code. Um, but over time, um, these, these protocols, the, the good ones, will demonstrate that they're actually, you know, resilient and trustworthy. And the, the sort of positive sort of um, sort of effects of, of the ecosystem com- composing one application into another and, and, you know, compounding innovation more rapidly will far outweigh the sort of um, short-term negative effects of these, uh, of like bugs and uh, creating, you know, negative depend or uh, dependencies that weaken the system overall. So, so long-term, I think this is a much more resilient ecosystem because of the composability of these protocols. And it's, 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 it's a system where, you can trust that um, what you build on top of is not going to get yanked from underneath you because, again, all the codes open. You can trust the code's going to run as specified because it's running on a decentralized computer, and that's very, very different um, than the the sort of Web two era that came before, where you had a similar phenomena of developers building on top of platforms like Twitter and Facebook and and Spotify, and there were these rich developer ecosystems. But eventually, you know, each of those platforms had admin keys and decided, you know what, we're going to we're going to shut up, change the rules, shut off our APIs and bring down these entire developer ecosystems to bring all that um, product innovation in house. So, you know, that's that's the 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 risk of of having admin keys or having control by one central party. And I I think, you know, the, the long term risk of. Uh, of that single point of failure is much greater to developers than um, th- than the risk that the short term there's a bug that um, that that you know that, that can ultimately be fixed um, over time. Okay, but hopefully during that time nobody's funds will be lost. That's true. I mean, I, I'm not saying there there won't be there there will definitely be painful you know painful problems along the way, but I, I do think the the sort of fundamentals here um, are stronger and, and over time. These these protocols will prove to be more resilient than um, than than platforms that came before. 
All right. Well, one other thing. So in the days before recording this podcast, TBTC had to pause deposits for 10 days, which basically means they're just going to drain the funds from the smart contract. And I presume they'll just try again later uh, because the key that they had only allowed them to pause the protocol once for that express purpose of draining the funds. And they made it so that they could not upgrade the contract. And, you know, we did mention that um, it is possible to create upgrades through governance. So, like, why is it that some of these teams are opting to not make their projects upgradable? So I think there's a lot of reasons um, why. And it also comes down to the fact that every project is unique and different. And I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution because different projects need different governance mechanisms um, and in different ways, right? If you're building a platform that you know, is meant to be a very simple building block, you might want less upgradability than a platform that's meant to evolve a little bit over time. And so I think for something like TBTC, where they're creating an asset, it makes a lot of sense that you want a very limited amount of upgradability. If you're building a tool that looks more like a decentralized financial product, it has more complexity to it, you might want there to be some upgradability even if it's only for simple purposes. A great example in some ways is Compound. You know, There's certain assets that we need to be upgradable that need to be able to have governance there um, because the assets can evolve in unexpected ways. You have to have the ability to make changes and make improvements. But if we were building something that was a very straightforward building block like Bitcoin on Ethereum, we might have elected to have almost no upgradability. All right. So one last question I want to ask about a specific project is um, just about block one. (laughs) Clearly, this was a token team that somehow did things right. Block one, or or depending on your perspective, I don't know if right is the exact word, but anyway, block (laughs) one raised $4.1 billion in an ICO, and they only had to pay the SEC a penalty of $24 million for conducting an unregistered securities offering. So what is it that Block One did right? I think they told a really good story. Um, and, and narrative is really important when you know building a community. You got to get the community excited about, um, about the journey that they're going to go on with the, the product that they're using. So if, if, if they did anything right, I think it's they told a, a really good story about uh, a sort of community-owned platform, and they got the community excited about buying in to, to own a piece of it. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the, the 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 platform itself, the technology, is is you know the best um, or the winning one. Um, but I, but I think they did a good job of of galvanizing community interest and, and getting the community to to buy in. Um, I, I would argue that um, you know today you you can take the narrative piece go build the best technology or the best product and then um, give the community ownership once you've demonstrated that the product is, in fact, sort of best in class and the community is getting real utility out of it. I'll take the opposite view um, real quick. I don't know if they you know, did anything right because I measure what's right by usage and adoption. So I think you know, time will be a true test um, to judge whether they did things right by building a blockchain that is a platform for lots of new applications and usage. And it's possible they did do things right. It's possible it becomes an extremely successful blockchain, and it's possible it goes nowhere. Um, I think, you know, we have to reserve judgment uh, for probably a few more years. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, when I said right, I meant because I think most people were shocked at how small the penalty was 
compared to how large their <laughs> ICO was. <laughs> All right. Well, so going forward, what trends or experiments are you guys watching in terms of how teams decentralize? And are there any particular projects or s- strategies that are intriguing to you? I think um, uh, so. At layer one, I think the, the Celo team just launched Mainnet recently, and um, I think they've done a really good job of, of progressive, progressively decentralizing their community um, and, and their product. They, you know, they have a core team that built a layer one blockchain, um, and then they they recently ran um, a a sort of testnet incentivized testnet program where um, validators who run will run the layer one blockchain. Um, could register to participate and sort of earn um, earn tokens at the point that the mainnet actually launched. So I think that's that's a good example of you know build the technology, build the product that people want, build a community around the product, namely the validators in, in this case, um, and demonstrate that the validators can actually stand up the network through a testnet. And once you've done that and demonstrated the testnet's running, then you move to mainnet and effectuate the distribution of ownership through tokens to the validators um, that, that actually are running the network. And, and so that all that just happened. And um, I think it was, it was executed on really, really well. Um, and so now, of course, the next step is to see, you know, beyond the validator community, can you get a, a community of developers building on top of the platform? So I'm, I'm actively watching to see what happens there. Robert. Well, I'm excited by the pace of, education around governance increasing exponentially. Um, I think teams are getting a lot faster at decentralizing. I think they're also getting to the process of, you know, giving tokens to users directly more rapidly. I've seen a number of DeFi projects in the past couple weeks um, embrace the idea of distributing tokens to users through their protocol. And I think we're going to see more and more projects, you know, run by the community in a shorter amount of time. You know, I don't want to say we've done a poor job, but it took Compound three years uh, to get to the point of legitimate decentralization. And I think a lot of other teams are going to be able to stand on the shoulders of giants and get there a lot faster, you know, having seen what works and what doesn't work. Agreed. Yeah, one one thing I would add, add to that is I, I think this phenomena is likely going to play out um, across many more verticals. So, of course, it's happening in, in DeFi today and, and Compound sort of pioneering the best practices. Um, but, but I do tend to think that this phenomenon of community ownership and, and control over, you know, internet products and services is going to play out um, more horizontally. So it, it it's probably starts with, you know, more technical communities, the communities that bit, bit, built Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are largely technical communities, I think you could argue that um, still today, DeFi, it's 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 technical um, technical folks and financially oriented folks that are maybe sort of more quantitative driven. Um, but but over time, we may start to see this play out in more consumer facing marketplaces. For example, you know, why isn't it the case that um, that hosts on Airbnb or drivers and Uber um, can't own the platform or own a piece of the platform and have a say in, in how it evolves? Um, you know, crypto tokens, I think, make it way easier to distribute value very granularly um, to users of internet platforms and services at internet scale. And, and so I, I do think that this phenomenon is going to play out, um, you know, uh, beyond just technical crypto communities, but, but eventually across all sort of consumer marketplaces. And so that's, that's sort of the exciting thesis on where all this goes. Yeah, we'll have to regroup in a few years and see if, if that turned out to be the case. <laughs> 
All right. Well, it's been great having you both on the show. Thanks for coming on Unchained. Thanks for having us. Laura, thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Jesse, Robert, and the path to progressive decentralization, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. Don't forget to take the Unchained survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020 to have your say in how we can improve the show. Again, you can have a chance to win a metal MCO Visa card that Crypto.com will stake indefinitely and that offers free Spotify, free Netflix, and 3% back on all spending, plus extra interest on your crypto deposit. For your chance to win, fill out the survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2020. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. 